Perfect. So hello and welcome to the Hackathon podcast. Today I have Joseph Weinberg with me. He is one of the Bitcoin OGs, has been mining Bitcoin since 2010. He started off as a Canadian exchange guy and today he is representing us. He is repre- representing Shift which uh, is more of a decentralized regulation which a lot of these exchanges are going to use he would help us unpack a lot of the things that go on over there what is the fatf doing with our bitcoin what is the travel rule and so on and so forth without further ado afternoon podcast i'd like to pass the mic on to joseph to tell us all little bit about his background. Thanks so much. Yeah, as you mentioned, been in the space for a very long time. We started Shift late 2016, early 2017. And it was a culmination of a lot of experiences that we had early on in the ecosystem. Regulators didn't understand what crypto was. And we looked at it and said, if the ecosystem continues to evolve the way that you know we think it will and expand and scale the way that we had seen for the first five to seven years, the biggest threats and risks to the space over time would become regulation. Right. And you know, regulation is complex and we can walk through what that means. But we needed to start looking at infrastructure as a way to coordinate everyone to make sure we can complement regulators and traditional requirements but also keep decentralization, maintain privacy, maintain openness. So yeah, that's what we've been working on for the last five years. Got it. Got it. Like, yeah, sounds like a long time. In crypto, it's like 50, I think. So. Yeah, at least 50. Let's start with the like biggest question that I guess every Bitcoiner would ask. When you talk about regulation, like why regulation? Why should we have regulation? Because Bitcoin, the blockchain OG, like that was founded because there was no belief in the system. Why should we start believing in the system now? I don't think it's about believing in the system. It's more, and I think many of the people that worked on Shift were a part of that very early group that helped bring Bitcoin to where it was and where it is, myself included, I think, in many capacities. Like, we, we just can't be like blind to the fact that as we want adoption to occur, that the rock that we live on, the countries that we all live in, that's where the majority of consumers are. And, and, and with that comes the reality of the world, right? Which is there are rules, there are regulators, there are policy. We might not like that. that. Mm-hmm. And, and Bitcoin acts as a, a way to opt out of parts of that system. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people that are entering in the space probably aren't here for the same reasons that early Bitcoin adopters and the earliest guys from a privacy and decentralization perspective are came in, coming into the space for. And we have to make sure that Bitcoin survives and succeeds. Like the blockchain doesn't care what we think. The public network just continues to move forward. Right. And that's what makes it beautiful. Like that's the best part. It's like decentralized decentralization is there at the protocol level. But humans like aren't permissionlessly decentralized and and like the risk that we have is if we don't get regulation we can stop our ability to on-ramp more people into the ecosystem and we want to make sure the regulations don't touch the protocol levels we want to make sure that like where businesses live where people are interacting with this onboarding all over the world that like we can at least give a middle ground between saying, okay, we understand that regulation is not going away. We might not like it, but it's just the reality. So how do we make sure we build infrastructure that can support that without it breaking everything that we've built? And it makes a lot of sense. Because I was speaking to one, like this other Bitcoin OG who I know, and he was like, man, I think that we are gonna need regulation. We have fought it off as, as much as we can. 
as long as we have. But now we want to make Bitcoin accessible to those people. And he used it in a very disparaging way. And I'm going to say it very kindly. He said that now we need to make it uh, simple to use for those people for whom the warning is like placed on those like pizza boxes. Eat after opening the box. So like for those people, you need to make it simple. And hopefully uh, you guys get us there. When I talk about regulation, I guess the culmination of the regulated world or the fiat world has been the credit card. And mm-hmm. a big factor why people use credit card is that if I don't like the transaction, I could do a chargeback or whatever is it called. So basically, it reverses the transaction. Can you do that on Bitcoin with regulation? No. That doesn't work. That does not work. And that's the point is like, we don't want to, we want to make it so that regulation doesn't try to attempt changes to the base layer protocols. Mm -hmm. Like we don't want people going after miners, for example, we don't want people going after software developers. That's dangerous. But like the app where people go into applications or centralized custodians, it makes sense. We don't want people getting hacked and getting all their money stolen. We need like areas that are okay to be regulated. We want to keep the protocols though like pristine and and, and open that's the goal got it got it and i just have a couple of more of these questions before we dive more into what is the what is the travel rule what is shift so one of those like prior questions is like a now that there would be a regulation layer probably now there would also be some service providers so will be will there be an add-on fee of sorts like we are already paying the mining fees or the transaction fee, like whatever you want to call it. Will there now be an add-on cost on top of it? Will be like, uh, will it be like a bank built on top of the blockchain? In terms of regulation, you're saying? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's obviously more costs go into regulation, right? Like things become slightly more expensive. But to be honest, like the approach that we've taken is like to try to make it so that network transaction fees are the way in which you increase the costs and you don't do it at the rate at which Ethereum's transaction fees are scale or, you know, mm-hmm. increasing. So you try to reduce and, and socialize the costs across everyone because I think that probably helps. So in the sense that banks charge more for certain things, I think exchanges and centralized entities will probably do that over time. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not as terribly as banks do today. But yes, I think right. there are more costs involved in more trust and, and data reliability. That is nice to hear. And yeah. that brings me to my final pre- uh, preliminary question. And mm-hmm. that is, uh, it require upgrades to the Bitcoin software itself. Like you must remember yeah. Taproot had to fight for so many things and even... Like, not just that, like, it could be a BCH or a BSV, like all of those like things about Segway, Taproot, all of these needed consensus on chain. This regulation needs something like that. Yeah, so the key of what we're trying to solve at Shift is to never put any of this on the base layer. So Mm -hmm. we don't want like soft forks or upgrades or hard forks in the case of Ethereum to have to basically force or require regulation because Mm. that becomes very dangerous from a very long-term perspective. These protocols have to start as like privacy and pseudo anonymity is like by design, like the initial starting point in any Mm -hmm. one of the blockchain network. And so uh, basically if you think about shift, it's really like a side chain. It's really there to say, Mm -hmm. we can allow all of these regulations to opt into a 
protocol and onto a smart contract architecture, we uh-huh. can retrofit all those requirements on this layer and the uh-huh. segregated system. And they can basically rely on those main chains for information uh-huh. without us putting regulations into the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, and so on and so forth. And we think that's the best way to do it because it becomes an opt-in system right? as opposed to a forced system from a design standpoint. Mm-hmm. Got it. Like, is it similar to, or, or is it exactly what you would call a layer two solution? Like exchanges or DAP serve as the application layer. They communicate with your shift-like ecosystem or the shift layer. And then yeah. the shift layer verifies the the on-chain data by querying the blockchain. Correct. You got it completely. Okay, got it. Now that I'm like a little bit up to speed, help <laughs> us understand the FA. But that's about it. I know about the money launderings or the KYCs yeah. and the AMLs, but break down FATF for somebody who doesn't know. Yeah, there's a lot of intergovernmental organizations in the world, right? And so mm-hmm. an intergovernmental organization is a, a cross-jurisdictional body. The OECD is one. They work on policies for the Western economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FATF is another one. The Financial mm-hmm. Action Task Force, they were created in the 80s and 90s, late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and their job is to basically build standards and policies. Mm-hmm. Um, what they try to do in these organizations is effectively build a universal set of guidelines or, or rules mm-hmm. um, that allows all countries in the world to agree to a standard. It's almost like a protocol, right? The Bitcoin protocol is universal. The rules are all understood by everyone. And so that's the way to think about the FATF. Mm-hmm. The FATF is specifically focused and designed to basically look at threats to the financial system. So mm-hmm. any money laundering, terrorist financing, human trafficking, they basically deal in like financial crimes and trying to make sure that we have a global policy for regulators to mm-hmm. implement into every country in the world mm-hmm. uh, in order to combat illicit activity. Does that So that's like kind of the first piece of like what the FATF is. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes them interesting and powerful is that they're not a democratic country. They're governed by four, you know, four, 36 countries and a few more. Mm. And when people don't work on their guidelines or their rules, they enforce things like gray lists mm-hmm. and blacklisting. And so all countries have an incentive to try to maintain those uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's like some background on the FATF. What makes it Interesting from the crypto context is that crypto is global, right? Mm -hmm. Regulations are local, but the policies that are being created today by the FATF are really designed to change the way that crypto networks work because what Mm -hmm. they want to do is prevent money laundering and terrorist financing. Mm -hmm. And so what those two combined do is start to change the way the ecosystem works. So we can walk through that. Gotcha. Oh, I'll probably go off in a tangent and like stop me if you don't want it. Like the FADF, like it has a gray list, right? Pakistan, like a neighboring like nation of mine has been on there for a very long time. Then there is TRIPS, another like intergovernmental organization or agreement for intellectual properties. Mm -hmm. India, like where I live, is on that list, like I think just above Iran, out of those 38 countries, India, for like not having all of these laws. 
And then there is the U.S. Patriot Act, which says that you cannot deal with certain countries such as South Sudan, Iraq, Iran, whatever. And all of these ICOs, they fall in line. They say, okay, you cannot trade in the USA, and you also cannot trade in the places which the USA doesn't like. So what message I derive from it is that do these intergovernmental organizations have the teeth to basically enforce what they need. Yeah, I would say they definitely do. And I think like up until this year, a lot of people in crypto, like we were saying this for years, right? Mm -hmm. This is a big problem. Everyone, regulation is going to come in. And everyone was like, ah, DeFi people were like, (laughs) everyone's like, you guys are crazy. And then this year, now everyone's going, oh my God, like Mm -hmm. this can really impact things. And it's because we take for granted like, the size, the scale, and the resources that governments have, right? Like Mm. they're used to fighting wars and things. I'm sure that they can put damage on a bunch of cyberpunks. Yeah, exactly. So if you've seen the last few months, you've noticed a lot of um, regulators have been putting out guidance around exchanges, global Mm -hmm. exchanges around the world, Binance and everyone, they're going through a lot of uh, transition. And, Mm. And that's because regulators do have a huge ability to... Uh, impact companies, businesses, and our ecosystem. They've been trying to avoid doing it. And this year they said, enough is enough. Like it's time for you guys to actually do stuff. So yeah, I think they do. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. And you, uh, BitMEX, all of these big exchanges, which you would believe because of their competitive spirits do not speak to each other. And now all of them are working with you. Mm. So they're like, like a layer, which we can say that we are let's say regulated like allergic or whatever i don't want to get get into that but how do you like work at an environment with so many competing let's say interests yeah but all of them coming together like everybody has their own varied requirements finance was it or something how do you guys manage all of that with one solution and also if you could help break down what is it that you guys do Yeah. We always look at this thing where like blockchain networks are very good at coordination, right? That's basically Mm. what a public blockchain is. It allows Mm. us to coordinate counterparties. Some of them compete, some of them collaborate. That's this like constant tug of war, this Mm. pulling and pushing. And so when you think about regulations, they're very much in the same situation. We are the biggest exchanges in the world. We compete all the time, right? We compete over users, liquidity, transaction volume, all these things. But at the same time, when we compete in these areas, we have to collaborate because... They also believe, and I think like a lot of the exchanges that we work with are very ideologically driven too, right? Like we are very early Bitcoin adopters, all the CEOs of those exchanges and everyone in, in the those exchanges broadly. And they're all sitting there saying, we understand the regulatory problems that we have. If we don't all come together and try to, you know, solve this for the wider industry, like we are all in trouble. So the risk and the threat of not helping solve this for everyone, I think is too great. And we all want to see the the ecosystem succeed. And yeah, whether it's BitMEX or it's Binance, everyone has different approaches to regulation in different areas. Mm-hmm. They're all moving fairly quickly right now to, to get those changes implemented as regulations require it. And I think the one thing they recognize is that through all of this, 
through all of these changes, which there are big ones uh, from a regulatory perspective, we want to make sure that we don't destroy decentralization. We don't break open systems. We don't rebuild SWIFT. We don't rebuild the banking system. Protocols open and privacy maintained. And so everyone has the same belief. And I think that's really important for everyone, users of our ecosystem that like, you know, that even in the face of regulation, we don't break the things that make the space great. So I think that's it. I don't remember the next part of your question, but. <laughs> Got it. Like I can go back to it later, <laughs> but that brings up another question in my mind. It's about when you work with all of these exchanges, which are essentially what you would call centralized exchanges, right? Mm-hmm. Binance is not exactly what you'd call decentralized, but the layer that you are building is decentralized are there mechanisms or checks in place which can like like at least verify what binance says to you because they could again allegedly falsify data how would you know that yeah so the regulations are very specific right let's say you're exchange a and exchange b Mm -hmm. Uh, exchange a every time a withdrawal occurs Mm-hmm. in exchange a right so someone sends bitcoins out to an address they give exchange a the address and then they say please send this bitcoin to this address the exchange a now in these regulatory requirements is now forced to do a few things mm-hmm. figure out who is exchange b is it binance is it Huobi? who is it mm-hmm. what jurisdiction is it mm-hmm. what user's jurisdiction is on the receiving end of exchange b And then how do we guarantee that we are who we say? How do we know that you are in fact Binance or Huobi? Mm -hmm. And then how do you coordinate the data sharing rules and then actually share that data? And so there's a lot of like complex processes that go into that process. And so the way that works is you basically use smart contracts to mediate those requirements. Those exchanges basically attributions or attestations into Mm -hmm. the shared ledger. That shared ledger is there to allow them to coordinate Mm -hmm. and the smart contracts enforce the rules. So it makes it so no one can cheat. Each other verifies one another. The exchanges can constantly are verifying one another. Mm -hmm. They're also constantly verifying the addresses. It's Mm -hmm. very hard to fake a private key, right? Right. So if if I know that Binance can sign a message from your user exchange A's private key, pretty, pretty well said that's probably Binance. And so we use and rely on all of these private keys and public keys and signatures as a way to basically build guarantees in those messaging situations. And then all data is shared on a P2P basis off chain. So users identity information doesn't ever touch a blockchain. We just use the blockchain as a coordination system and to ensure the rules of that coordination are always enforced. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. When we talk about this level of coordination and collaboration, like we have smart contracts, like is there a particular like language, like solidity that you use for your smart contracts or is it something that you are building from scratch? No, it's all EVM based. It was designed. We, we think that the EVM is probably going to be the winner over the long term, just in terms of a virtualized machine. And so we use the EVM and we use solidity based smart contracts in order to execute everything that I just described. And the goal of that system is that it works cross chain. So there is a way of basically us linking 
different different contracts that all deal in this data attestation and data routing or data transmission across multiple protocols simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So it really builds this identity and this kind of like reputation or social graph trust layer. And that's important for other use cases that aren't just the travel rule, things that relate to identity, things that relate to credit and things that relate to more government related projects and decentralized finance as well as a, a big uh, piece to that from an mm-hmm. institutional perspective. So it's really a general purpose project and a protocol stack. And the exchanges are just the first ones to utilize that data protocol and infrastructure. And like there have been talks about like America's infrastructure bill having some impact on getting all of these people to huddle up. Is there any truth to that or was it something that was always like the writing? I I think it's separate from the travel rule. But no, I think what we're seeing right now is something that crypto has never been faced with before. This is now the big leagues and in the the big leagues, which has only been about a year since this really kicked off. But this last run has basically set a new uh, world in motion for the digital asset space. We're now dealing with lobbying at the level of financial institutions. We're dealing with the highest levels of, of government that this space has never, ever heard of or really probably ever seen or felt before. And that's what we're starting to realize and and feel as these changes come. So the infrastructure bill, just like U.S. political systems often do, have a lot of things happening in the background, right? And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of competitors at the table that are trying to push crypto in a certain direction. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, to be honest, like policymakers too are trying to figure out where crypto fits. Regulations don't really work the way that they used to. The traditional world is regulated in a certain way. Right. Crypto makes that way up. It's a reformulation of policy, and that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And so the infrastructure bill is our first glimpse, and I don't think that it's over. I think it's the beginning. How does like the regulation by the FATF differ from like the kind of regulation that Bitcoin has, let's say, enjoyed in a place like Japan. Yeah. So the FATF is global, right? So Mm. it's trying to basically standardize KYC and AML requirements. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of all of the regulations that generally, so the CFTC is different than the SEC, which is different than FinCEN. FinCEN deals with FATF. There's a lot of things here, right? And, And that's the other problem is crypto is young and it's technology entrepreneurs. And now you're getting thrown in to all of these different places and camps simultaneously. And in places like Japan and others, they put out very strict licensing requirements over the last few years. The travel rule is a portion of that licensing, mm-hmm. but it hadn't gone into effect. And it's also the problem is that this data transmission requirement, moving user data on every transaction is very hard to do, like mm-hmm. securely and safely and how do you make sure the GDPR isn't being violated? All these small questions become make it very hard for even a country like Japan just to say, we're just going to force people to do this because mm-hmm. like, they've never done this before. Because there are no borders when it like comes to crypto. So yeah. let's get to the meat of the matter now. So mm-hmm. explain the travel rule to somebody who is mildly knowledge- knowledgeable of things, but doesn't really get down to the brass tacks of it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you ever go to a bank 
mm-hmm. um, and you go to do a, a wire. You go to do a wire, you put in your information on your bank. You say, I'm sending $100. Mm-hmm. This is the, then they say, who are you sending it to? Your first name, your last name, the corresponding bank. Mm-hmm. the SWIFT number, all this information. And then hopefully, generally, the payment never gets there. We've lost it somewhere for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But, but then that's what's called using the SWIFT network. So that SWIFT network is basically a messaging system. And so SWIFT allows us to take my information and my money, your identity information, and your bank account, and allows us to connect these people. So Bitcoin and blockchains eliminated the need to move payments exactly like this, because we don't need the identity information. We just right. need, but in the traditional world, they rely on that identity. So mm-hmm. because they don't know where you are in the banking system, mm-hmm. they use the travel rule in SWIFT in order to move money to a user, which is your identity in the banking system. So basically Mm -hmm. in the traditional world, this is where the travel rule comes from. It comes from SWIFT. So basically what regulators did is they said, just like SWIFT takes your bank, your your money, takes the identity information and the accounts and basically matches people all over the world to send and receive payments. They took that same requirement out of the SWIFT network in the banking system mm-hmm. and then threw it onto crypto and said, this might not really make sense, but we're going to make you do it anyway. If that does that, if that kind of makes sense. So it does. Yeah. Like, yeah. so what I'm understanding is like for all of these exchanges, let's say that I have my, account on Binance and you let's say you have it on BitMEX. So when I send you, let's say Bitcoin, or let's say I send you Ethereum because EVM is cool, I need to send in my, my information is taken care of my bank or my like crypto exchange, uh, I'm sorry, Binance because they have that and yours is, is taken care of at your end. So there is no, let's say per se, interaction between me and the regulation because I am or I don't face that problem. But yeah. what happens if I'm using something like a ledger or my own like paper wallet, yeah. hard wallets? So luckily, and this is what we've been fighting for, is mm-hmm. there is discussion today that they want to allow regulations on P2P, which would be my wallet to right. your wallet. That today we've been fighting for to make sure does not happen. And I don't think that's going to happen because oh, that's, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's because that makes no sense. Like these regulations and regulations are only meant and designed for entities, mm-hmm. an entity that takes your money and helps you move it to someone else. That's mm-hmm. what the spirit of these regulations are for. So on that side, as a user today, you are okay. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. We're trying. And so then the only thing is when you move a transaction from Binance, we need to be there to make sure that we can safely move that information because of a huge risk in identity loss and and Mm. identity theft or hacking and everything. And so today that's where the regulations apply. Then the last piece would be DeFi, which in October we'll know what to do. Mm -hmm. This is where the battleground I think really will come because the question is a DAO or is a DEX Mm. technically technically an exchange equivalent? Is it an Mm -hmm. entity, a decentralized entity, but an Mm. entity? And therefore you get into weird regulatory requirements in smart contracts. If Mm -hmm. 
they push it forward. So that, that's the lay of the land, at least today. <laughs> right. So before I let you go, like, what's your what's your outlook for DeFi on that front? Because if I look at it at, from a very technical perspective, it hasn't. How do you regulate that? Because that would need another yeah. layer of smart contract, another layer of vulnerabilities cropping up, bugs popping up, and you see how exchanges go, right? Poly network or whatnot, $600 million. I'm pretty sure that kind of money gets returned only because the hacker does not know how to launder it. If he knew how to launder it, that money would have been gone. Gone, of course. Yeah, tell me about it. So we design shift as to effectively be that opt-in smart contract layer. Like Mm -hmm. we look at it as saying, the the requirements and the way the data formats into these smart contracts, how identity is persisted across the shift layer. Today, we started it with the exchanges because they aggregate the most people and they have the biggest problems globally. As a net, mm. all the contracts and smart contracts of shift are basically designed to be usable across any other smart contract. Mm-hmm. So, although we would never and can never allow on-chain user data like PII, mm-hmm. it can represent users blinded, like things like zero knowledge proofs equivalent. Mm-hmm. We can make representations of who users are and we can solve the regulatory problem if we need to in DeFi using smart contracts without, again, breaking all of how DeFi works. It will mm-hmm. make changes to DeFi, but it will not just destroy everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way, and that's what we've been working on today with institutions for more for like institutional DeFi, as I think that's where those types of system make sense. Yeah. So it will expand the space, but again, we can solve it. We just need regulators also to regulate in a new way right. because DeFi <laughs> will not work the way they hope it will. So yeah. I have one final question. Like I was reading this article by Sam Kazu, one of those DeFi thought leaders at Paradigm. So mm-hmm. shout out. He wrote this article called Two Pluses Make a Negative. So he mm-hmm. broke down the poly network hat. So what the problem was that all of these architectures, they are made very modularly. So let's say one person works on part A, another one works on part B, and then they join all of that together. And the common assumption within most of the developers is that if A works properly, if B works properly, Z works properly, and when I combine them, A, B, Z would work properly. That never happens. (laughs) <laughs> so what is your thoughts on that? What do you, like, where is your head at on that topic? Yeah. So the, and I, to, to listeners that aren't in the core dev space, maybe it's this general consensus that like when smart contracts don't touch assets, they, not to say they don't need audits and, and formal verification, but like you can allow them to be more modular and upgradable. And I think what you're describing is the problem where like two asset holding or, or connecting contracts come together, they don't work and they everything right. starts or something similar to that. So the way that we did this was like personal experience. We only had two to three developers for three and a half years build everything at the same time. And so they were the core. And what that did was made sure that we knew every single piece, how it connects and how they all intertwine across the set. The siloing becomes a big issue too, right? We don't, we, we're not dealing with huge amounts of, you know, liquidity contracts and complex DeFi things. 
the reality is the ecosystem has to go through hacks. Like we have to learn how to get better. Right? Well, that's so the thing. Bitcoiner, yeah. my, my Bitcoin hat on would be like, this is dumb. Yeah. You know, to be honest, <laughs> like you make things too complicated and yeah. that's terrible. Don't be so flexible. I, I don't think the Bitcoin competes in any way with Ethereum. I think they're entirely separate systems. They're not meant to be comparable. So in the, the Ethereum side, yeah, you have to have this continual burn and, right. and rebirth. But yeah, you should build simple and build carefully, right? So, right. Yeah. Gotcha. That's very interesting to hear. And that was a very wonderful conversation. I really mm -hmm. had fun talking to you, Joseph. And we have the best wishes for you at Shift. And with that, we'd like to call it a wrap on the Hackerhood podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Yusuf. Good afternoon podcast.